NWP Radio. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. Hello, hello, hello. It's official. It's the new school year, and the wonderful crazy is taking off once again. Woohoo! For the excitement of it all. My name is Brian Ripley Crandall, and I'm fortunate to co host this show, The Right Time, with my friend, my mentor, Tanya Baker, <laughs> Director of National Programs. I'm equally fortunate to bring forward tonight's guests and to feel a little more giddy than usual. And I know that might be difficult for Tanya to comprehend. <laughs> yes, my enthusiasm is so large for all these shows, but tonight I'm, I'm bringing this way closer to home. Tanya, are you ready to help debut a spectacular resource for writing educators everywhere that has just launched? Well, Brian, it's always a pleasure to work with you. And you know, that's what I want to do primarily more than anything. And I remember you telling me last year after we recorded a show that we must, we must invite memoirist Sonia, Sonia Huber to be a guest on The Right Time. <clears throat> Her book, Voice First, A Writer's Manifesto is out this fall. And you have had the pleasure of knowing and working with Sonia for over a decade. She's an intellectual guide and she's one heck of a writer, as you say, she brilliantly illuminates the intricate paths writers can take to shape their voices on the page. Yes, you've been raging about this upcoming teaching resource for over a year, and I am excited to have the author with us tonight. The book is finally out, and teachers across the network are going to love this. Yeah, I'm agreeing with you 150%, maybe 151%. So Sonia is one of my muses. She's a neighbor. She's a colleague. She's a friend and one of the best workshop presenters in the universe, in the universe. She, they're amazing. You want her to come to your school and do a presentation. It's outstanding. So teachers in Connecticut have been so fortunate to learn from her brilliance in our summer institutes. Sometimes, though, I sometimes really wonder if she's just a part of my imagination simply because she's just so magical. So when I got asked to review voice uh, first, over a year ago, I called her and said, after I read it, oh my God, you have written the missing link that so many of us have needed our entire careers. Wow. Educators are going to love, love, L-O-V-E, love this book. More officially, Sonia Huber is the author of seven books, including the new guide, Voice First, A Writer's Manifesto, and the award-winning essay collection on chronic pain, Pain Woman Takes Your Keys, and other essays from a nervous system. Her other books include Supremely Tiny Acts, A Memoir in a Day, Open Nobody, Cover Me, A Health Insurance Memoir, and The Backwards Research Guide for Writers. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Brevity, Creative Nonfiction, and other outlets. She teaches at Fairfield University with me and in the Fairfield Low Residency MFA program. Her students also love her. <laughs> wow. A whole giant reading list. <laughs> And Brian, I think you need to do a little bit of more full disclosure here. Our teacher guest for this show actually went through the CWP Fairfield Summer Institute twice, only because she wanted to be rejuvenated and revitalized for another academic year. In fact, she returned because she was seeking to rekindle her own voice in writing and teaching. When she did her teacher demonstration on helping middle school youth to find their voice, you shared an advanced copy of Sonia Hooper's book with her. The rest his history brings us to this evening. Michelle Caruso Walker has been working in education for the last 20 years. She's taught middle school and high school in Connecticut and New York City. Michelle has a PhD from Fordham and currently works in Westport Public Schools as the middle school instructional coach. She's also mom to three boys. 
And yes, she returned to CWP Fairfield, led by the one and only Brian Ripley Crandall, for a second time last year. Like I said, it's all family tonight. So what we're going to do is we're going to hand it over to Dr. Caruso Walker, who's going to give an opening writing prompt to everybody if they want to stop and record at home. And then we're going to let the two of you have a great conversation and we're going to go poof and disappear. We will come back in after about 30 minutes and, you know, we'll gauge where the conversation is going and all will be well. So, Michelle, it's all yours. Okay, great. So um, this writing prompt actually comes from the book we're about to discuss, specifically chapter three, Voices Live in the Body. Try to put yourself in the mindset of a kid you used to be. It might be helpful to pick a specific age. Think about what you like to do at that age or your favorite things or moments of comfort and joy. Then write from that point of view. Children are often bold, physical, and a little feral. What was your wild voice like? And what would it say to the reader? Ooh, I'm gonna go down memory lane. All right, <laughs> have a great conversation. Okay. Hi, Sonia. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good, it's so nice to meet you. And likewise, definitely. Um, so I'm gonna jump into questions uh, and then let me know if you have a question for me. Okay, uh, awesome. The title of the book is Voice First. Mm -hmm. And too often in my teaching experience, voice seemed to be discussed last. Yeah. after organization, evidence, transitions, et cetera. Why did you title the book Voice First? Um, my main idea was that for me, after really trying every other possible approach, I sort of came to the idea that voice for me and voices are what impel everything else. So, you know, rather than being sort of this mysterious secret sauce you put on at the end that it's it's the generative uh muscle that makes the writing uh move and expressive and provides ideas yeah um and this is kind of connected to that but um one of the ideas that really stood out to me in the beginning um the opening of your book is that we just have one voice as writers, we have multiple voices. Mm -hmm. um, that focus on the plurality of voice really struck me. You describe like voice as a river, as a braid, having many layers. And how did you arrive at that idea? Why is it important to talk about voices and not a single voice? I think, um, you know, just over my, over the years of teaching writing and being in writing classrooms, like the, the advice to find your voice just seemed so mystifying to me because I didn't know where it was, mm -hmm. you know? And I think what it does is it sets up a reader or it sets up a writer to, to feel as though they, their expression is supposed to be a little different than who they are. Like their voice is somewhere out, outward. And, you know, I've seen so many students who, as it is, are already, they feel so alienated and separate from their expression that I think the, you know, the mystery, the lack of clarity around, you know, that definition of a single voice just made me want to um, really unpack it, look at the scholarship and, and then also explore what would happen if I gave myself all of these writing prompts, so. Did you actually do all of the writing prompts? I, mean, I wanna talk about that a little bit later, but did you do all the writing prompts yourself? Oh yeah, I do. Um, 
yeah i it's voice work is now one of the main things that i do with my writing and it's also i mean i think it's also one of the things that continues to be the most difficult for me mm. i can often like i often know if i'm working on a book like this voice is wrong for this project okay um and then i have had a couple of books where i have tried to write uh the book in multiple voices and you know part of the the effect of some of those frankensteins has been <laughs> to really see like oh like i can rewrite this book seven times and there actually are voices that are kind of layered in on top of each other and that seems to work in some way and then you know that got me thinking and then as always i go to the writing of other authors that i love for inspiration and uh I I always wish I was Annie Dillard. She's this beautiful <laughs> writer who wrote um, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. And so mm -hmm. her her voice is so fascinating to me. I wish I could channel it. But then in going back and teaching that book with my students um, in a writing place class like a number of years ago, you know, it struck me really strongly like it's not one voice. Like she actually has sort of tones that she shifts in and out of. So I think, you know, close reading of a book that I've loved and have read several times kind of was that final like aha moment of like, I'm trying to put myself into a box and the answer is instead to get broader. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, as Brian mentioned, he had shared a little bit of this with me and I did return to CWP because I had been doing some academic writing and I just wasn't writing. I just didn't sound like me. I was going back and forth. And when I come back to it, it is me. It's it's yeah. just a version. Um, but I had felt stuck, like what's my writer's voice? And so reading this was incredibly helpful, but it's nice to know it's kind of a common experience that. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's especially common, you know, cause I've taught, I, I teach academic writing and students who have done academic writing for so many years that they forget that there's other options or they haven't really been given the choice to explore those other options. And so then, you know, the most horrible thing to hear as a writing teacher is I hate writing, you know? And like, in some ways like that, hearing that from students, that's, it's such a heartbreaking thing. And it makes me um, want to give them the options of trying all these different things. And then usually what they find is like, oh, I just don't really feel connected to this voice, but I do to these seven or eight, which is, you know, I think what matters to me. Sure. Um, that's kind of, and this is like a personal question I've been thinking about a little bit, but I always wonder about writer's confidence. Like my students, yeah. either they write way too much because they're not really yeah. confident. And I usually teach middle school. Um, or they just don't write enough. And right. it seems to me like it's like a confidence thing. Like they don't feel like either comfortable in what they're writing or they're so uncomfortable that they're writing so yeah. much. And I was curious, do you think that like owning your voice or finding one of these voices that works for you would impact writer's confidence? I, yes, totally. And in fact, like, you know, this is this what always what happens to me. Like I finish a book, it goes off to the publisher and then I realize something that is like the next level, but I've been totally thinking about this, the question of voice and authority. Mm -hmm. And 
And yes, I have found just through thinking about this and, and working with students that there's a way in which if I am broadening out the range of voices I can use, often those voices are tied to different identities that I have, right? Mm -hmm. And each of those identities isn't just about me. So there's a way in which in doing um, sort of playing with voices, I'm reminded that, oh yes, I'm one among many people uh, from the Midwest. I'm one among many pain people. And somehow there's a way in which, because I often really struggle with authority in writing myself, like that question, I think that's always in our heads of like, well, who's going to care, you know? Right. Um, and something about listening to all these voices gives me the confidence to say, I'm speaking from lived experience in a way, mm -hmm. as opposed to sort of, you know, the disembodied academic head who it really is hard to feel passion sometimes or a sense of lived experience through that academic voice. So yeah, I'm I'm still mulling over that too, but I think there's something about being um having students know that or having students only try the academic voice that of course, like, because they're not academics, of course, they're not going to feel authority, like in that role. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so, yeah, it's sort of like we're setting them up in a way, if that's the only thing we're asking them to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I definitely have seen that in my own classroom. <laughs> and it also seems a little bit to connect to when we do what's supposed to be fun writing, when we do yeah. like narrative writing, or anything when we do play with fiction, mm -hmm. there's also that hesitation. And yeah. one of the kind of cliches of teaching that I've said before is like that show don't tell and you address yeah. that in your book. Um, it comes up in chapter seven. And it is kind of outdated advice. I always feel like I hear my old teachers voices. Yeah, when I say <laughs> the same. So full disclosure, I've said it. But what should teachers know about the importance of details and voice? Is there better advice than show, don't tell? I mean, I think sort of like the nonfiction writers have come up with this new cliche for our workshops, which I don't know <laughs> if it's better, but you know, that we often say show and tell. Right. Um, but yeah, I think there's, and, and it makes sense that we would say show, don't tell because, you know, the, the sort of home ground for writing workshops was the fiction workshop, right? And so right. I think a lot of our pedagogy comes from fiction writing. But so when I learned nonfiction, I talk about this in the book, that it was um, sort of based on the model of fiction writing. And so I took sh show don't tell into my nonfiction work, which, mm -hmm. you know, I think really was the core of some of the voice problems that I have. Because right, in a way, what that's doing is it's doing a version of academic writing in saying like, don't talk about what's going on in your subjective experience, just report what's in front of you, you know? And so there's a way in which in trying to do that perfectly, I was sort of, I was not trusting um, my own reflective voice. Right, it's still limiting 
in a way yeah. I tried to I've been trying out yes and which is an old improv oh yeah 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 uh, I love that but I'm always looking for a way to like include more and then work from there opposed to feeling like my kids freeze up when yeah they yeah definitely I mean I think as far as like my absolute favorite thing when um to help students who are frozen up is to talk about what annoys them <laughs> and so like yeah I have a chapter in here on anger but mm -hmm. um you know my favorite thing in teaching and this came out of just desperation one day teaching introduction to co composition a number of years ago and I gave students an open topic right they could research anything right and and I get that that's a total sort of like of course your brain would freeze what do you mean anything but they just couldn't think of anything and I was like you guys what do you care about and they were like you know I don't know and so I was like all right we're just gonna rant we're gonna rant for five minutes about everything that annoys you and as a teacher I then got one of my most delightful classroom experiences <laughs> because like instead of you know like getting all angry and hunched over their pages they like lit up with delight like mm -hmm. no one had ever said like please be mad be your irritable grouchy annoyed selves right mm -hmm. and so within the space they so they did this and they went off and I hated to even interrupt them and then often what they found was that even in the space of a two to three minutes what started as annoyance turned to inquiry or turned okay. to questions or turned in some other direction so you know that really made me think like as far as authority goes we're all often annoyed and grouchy and I su I have super sense of authority about what annoys me <laughs> so I think <laughs> that's underutilized as sort of a voice that kind of has endless energy behind it <laughs> and it's such a simple shift from what do you like versus yeah. what bothers you and then the list is always super long, right? I'm going to remember that because middle schoolers have a lot of complaints. They really do. Oh, gosh. Which I think would be really fun. I wish I had focused on maybe one of the prompts from the anger chapter of your book, but I loved, loved the try this sections throughout the oh, text. Oh, cool. And I was just curious, like, how did you come up with all of these examples? And do you have a favorite? <laughs> so my favorites were split. I had two and I jotted them down so I didn't forget. Either the voices that help me through the day but don't speak much, because oh, yeah. I have a lot of those. I have like an inner monologue right. a lot of times. Like, come on, or, you could do it. <laughs> I just need another cup of coffee. Exactly. Or, or um, writing a speech to imagine an imagined group of pirates or rogue <laughs> figures to tell them how badass I am. <laughs> those are my fa favorite too. So how did you come up with those? And you know, do you have a favorite one too? Um, oh God, I'd forgotten about the pirate one, but um, <laughs> I um. You know, I think some of it comes from like just having, you know, thinking back to like when my son is growing up, right? Mm -hmm. And like the the enormous number of 
voices that kids are trying out constantly, right? Like little kids. I have three sons, so. So yeah, so you see yeah. it, right? My and oldest then, is saying bra a lot, like, come on, uh, bra. And I'm like, okay. Does he call you bra? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's a rite of passage with boys. <laughs> like what? <laughs> Typically go by mom, but okay. Yeah, exactly. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, you know, something like the pirate voice, for example, is something is, is also one of those voices that I will try to work into my own head to counteract some of like the, again, you know, like the loss of confidence or the not feeling like um, I have anything to contribute to a conversation or whatever. And, um, and a lot of those come from like, the non-academic parts of my life you know and um and so they've they've always been really helpful to me in writing essays and so I think you know the in the, in the essay and non-fiction world we do a lot of weird voice stuff but then yeah. I've yeah I've just been trying to bring that more into the classroom and kind of to be more honest with students about like even adults walking around have these voices, right? Like we look so composed up at the front of the classroom, but we're right, always right. constantly annoyed. Like we've just gotten done, like, you know, making fun of our spouse or them making fun <laughs> of us or making fun of other teachers, right? So sure. yeah, I think in some ways our public personas take some of the fun out of expression, but it's actually there. So part of it is just wanting to invite students into that play knowing that that's also what real writers do yeah um I did want to ask you a little bit about chapter eight just because I thought it was really important which is embodied voices and um, racialized voices and I did I, I taught in upper Manhattan for five years and I mm -hmm. still like doubt some stuff that I did with my students and mm -hmm. work on their on voice and what mm -hmm. their what voice is supposed to sound like so yeah. I just think the idea of preferred standard voice that like kind of all American you call it like the white voice being associated with the rules yeah. and initially I thought of code switching when I started that chapter which you also addressed because mm -hmm. that was a big term when I was right working yeah when I city. when I first was sort of learning writing pedagogy that was the same way it was sort of like the ideal people just do this right yeah. And I, I feel like I even went on some PD that was talking about code switching. And so mm -hmm. as a teacher, I felt confident with that. But, you know, thinking about it more today and reading your chapter, I'm just wondering about ways that writers and their teachers can protect voices that have been restricted or silenced. And um, I had mentioned to Brian, he said, definitely include it, that NCTE just came out with a statement about writing instruction, and they do address the fact that, oh, you know, certain rules are preferred and what that does to voice and to young writers. Right, right, yeah. I mean, I think, too, this is one way in particular that if you're gonna allow students to do to practice multiple voices in the classroom mm -hmm. I, sort of my model or my ideal I, I or I, I I'm assuming this works for others because it does work for me is that 
you can generate thoughts using multiple voices and great ideas that then might go into some other document. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I think, you know, academics also have been doing this for years. I was just looking at something that I think was, I don't know what journal it was covered, but it was a, um, it was a completely scholarly journal, but it was a guy writing from um, working class experience, working mm -hmm. class guy. And he wrote this academic article. It was about rants. So of course I had to download it. <laughs> um, but it was all in like the dialect that he would normally use to express himself, like his mm -hmm. home voice. So, right. I think there's a real, there's a huge danger in sort of making, making the academic and thoughtful voice be too rigid right mm -hmm. so and I think too that also comes down to the issue of um of being honest with students about what writing process is like like so often like the thing that ends up for, for me with like a very fancy footnoted whatever starts as a bunch of like more here xxx finish that up where does this go right like it's a mess yeah. and so I think you know, that we can also like, no matter where our students are coming from, we can let them be themselves on the page and then maybe help them to not squash their enthusiasm and voices until they're completely satisfied with the final form. So, mm -hmm. you know, we can, we can teach our, our students, I think multiple multiple genres, including academic writing. But yeah, I think even academic writing is loosening up a little bit and realizing, I mean, really how uh, how harmful and violent it can be to s tell someone that their their voice and their method of expression is less thoughtful. Right. And I think, I mean, in my experience, both with my sons, but also as a teacher, I feel like that happens, it starts to happen in middle school, where yeah. I feel like there's a lot of voice play or just freedom in the yeah. elementary school writing that I see my boys come home with. And then when I walk into middle school classes, we just have a lot and a lot of like organizers and sentence starters and acronyms. And it just, it's a quick shift. Uh -huh. And I don't think it has to be like, um middle school and like right and just like, like the shift seems to happen and then all of a sudden it's like limited and then I was I also was thinking about what you had said about academic writing and how yeah. some of the restrictions are loosening a little bit and I'm just hoping that trickles down because yeah. so often what I hear is like oh you have to get ready for high school and middle school right. or, oh you have to get ready for college and I just there's no that seems to be the pressure of limiting voice and yeah it and, and I think it might be sort of like a like a which I think one of the reasons why I love the National Writing Project so much is you know in its mission to bring together college and K through 12 teachers is that I mean at least from my perspective in the writing classroom is that there is more looseness in mm -hmm. college and more like you know, there's there's been a turn towards more process-based instruction. And so, yeah, I think maybe some teachers might assume that there's more rigidity in college writing based on what there used to be, you know? So. Yes, 
that does make sense. And I also wanted to comment um, on the messiness and sharing the messiness with students. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think this is NWP, but when I write, I'll just write cold in front of my kids and start. Oh, that's typing. awesome. And, you know, they'll watch me misspell and do backspace and change a word or read it out loud to myself. And I think the more, you know, we can share that messiness might help kids as they're discovering their multiple voices or also developing confidence, like seeing themselves as writers. Right. Definitely. Definitely. And even I think, you know, having fun as they're doing it as a way to sort of realize, you know, like this, this, this gives me something as opposed to just being, you know, like, I'm not, I'm bad at this. I'm not doing it right. You know? Right. I know. I always feel bad when they say, well, I'm not a writer. I'm like, yes, you are. <laughs> I see you. You're writing a thousand things on your phone. I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're composing all the time those right? videos, yeah. it all counts so <laughs> I think those connections are super important um so I love talking about students and their writing but I have to admit when I first read your book I thought of myself awesome as, as a writer um <laughs> and one of the voices I thought of was my teaching voice you know I have a sp yeah. specific persona Definitely. when I'm teaching you know I'm, a, I'm M Michelle I'm mom but last year when I was in the classroom, the kids would always call me Doc Walk. Um, but yeah, there's eighth graders are a special group. But today, especially for new teachers, since I'm an instructional coach now, there's so much scripted curriculum. Oh God. And I feel like it gets in the way of like finding that teacher voice. And I know it's not specifically writing, but what do you think about voice in teaching or finding yourself in those different roles I think in some ways like m how I think of my writing and my teaching like I sort of grew up both as a writer and a teacher like always at the same time and so mm -hmm. I feel like teaching and hearing myself explain things to students re really has become one element of my um of my writing voice and especially the the version of my teaching persona that is trying to explain things in very simple, relatable, and, um, you know, concrete ways that are also interesting and fun. Um, but yeah, my, I, and I think too, part of the, I was just like joking with some of my, um, my colleagues about how every start of the school year, I go into my first class and I'm like, what am I doing? who do I think I am? Like, I actually don't know anything. Like if students knew what we thought on the, on our first day of school, they just would laugh, you know? And then by the end of the class, I was like, this is going to be awesome. I love this. You guys are going to have so much fun. And so, you know, kind of like the, the enthusiasm that Brian brought to his intro and that he brings to every day. Like, I feel like, uh, that has it's it's just been it's it's one of the joys that I I get to do that persona mm -hmm. and I get constant feedback that that works right and I think that that then has changed my writing in a way mm -hmm. right like and I do think that different roles that we play like there's writing there in all of them 
so yeah I mean I think that um but as far as like oh this like scripted curriculum um I you know I am I don't have to to deal with that at the college level but I could totally imagine that that would be it, it would definitely get in the way of trying to have spontaneous moments in the classroom with your students. I've been lucky. I've never really used scripted curriculum. And mm -hmm. by the time it started to get rolled out in the districts that I was in, I was already, I knew who Doc Walk was. I was okay. I had like some one liners. Oh, I, I felt comfortable in that space. But since I sometimes coach newer teachers and they look through the curriculum, it, it is written in a voice, but it's not always theirs. And so I'm usually like, this is an amazing resource, but right. you want to claim your agency, but it, yeah. it's, you know, it's a balance. Yeah. Right well, now. and I think there's that thing of, you know, you, you, you start off, I, I started off teaching thinking, you know, like, I look 12 years old, so I have to make them respect me, you know, and like sort of start off very like organized. And then after a while realize, oh, like it'll still happen no matter what. And I actually know things and those things seem to fall out of my mouth, even if like, I feel like I'm not doing very well. You know what I mean? Right. So yeah, I think part of it is just, you know, the, the, the number of years that you find yourself both doing great and... <laughs> <laughs> semi little nightmares you know <laughs> it ebbs and flows it it really does what do you write what 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 kind of stuff do you write me mm -hmm. well you know I was struggling with that because I went through a dissertation process and you know I felt like I was writing that forever yeah. and after that you know I, I did like a chapter here and there for a book like I was trying to find my way I tried to rewrite that dissertation into a journal article but um you know I've been just trying to journal more because when I did Connecticut awesome. Writing Project for the second time <laughs> I had done it first when I was very young and then I came back um I was like, I just, I, I feel like I want to be writing more. And Brian had said to me, well, do you write every day? Do you keep a journal? And I was like, <laughs> no, I wasn't. So that's been my main goal right now. And sometimes I'll like write a poem or, or something for fun. And sometimes it's just like a reflection on my day, but I'm trying to use that muscle more. That's um, awesome. I do have some goals like, oh, I should write about this practice that I did and try mm -hmm. to um you know submit to a journal or something but I right now I'm just trying to take it slow and kind of explore the different voices that I have and I don't know I, they're always there it's not yeah. like I'm finding them I always use the word find but that's not really true right. but just acknowledge them and practice right and I, I do think they're all muscles right and especially right. if you've been like I, I used to work as a journalist mm -hmm. and after a while and I still find myself like it's like a, you know, a shopping cart with a broken wheel. I'll veer in that direction. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm doing like reporter voice. No, um, and then I'll have to pull myself back. But I sort of think it must be the same thing with, you know, post-dissertation. Like you want to tend that way, but there's actually so much more out there. Right. I've been, um, I have a presentation coming up. So I've been rewriting that and I go to more of an academic, like, well, no, this, this is supposed to be this way and let's transition that way. And I'm like, no, you know, I think 
this is kind of a more engaging approach or like I'll play with it. But my go-to for so long has been like, well, no, you can't use I, you got to do transition. Right. And, I, right. and I'm like, what am I doing? So I'm really <laughs> catch myself with some of those rules um, overall. But that's what I, I've really been trying to journal more. I'll never forget that when I like asked Brian about like, well, I just want to be, and he's like, well, you know, you could journal every day. And I'm like, mm-hmm. <laughs> Sounds simple. So I, I am really trying to work on that, especially because my position is a little like I'm in a transition and so I've been thinking about that's awesome. Like. Um so one of the other things that I noticed when I was reading your book is just how many references and different authors and mm-hmm. um perspectives are included. I mean, Peter Alba was something He's that- everywhere. Oh, he's yeah. the man. <laughs> so and in some of the prompts, um, some of the try this sections, I was reminded of free writing or it reminded me of some of the Peter Elba work that I, I got to experience, which I should reflect on in my journal. Um, <laughs> and then like Virginia Woolf was there, Orwell was there, lots of bell hooks, Felicia <laughs> Rose Chavez, like there's a lot of different perspectives in here. And I was curious as to why you incorporated so many different voices with your own. Yeah. I mean, I think that's like back to the authority thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like I wanted to make sure because, you know, I have an MFA, but I am not like, I don't have a PhD. I always feel like I have to compensate a little bit and make sure I know the entire field, Mm -hmm. but I also wanted to test out and sort of see like this impulse that I have, like, does it fit anywhere? You know? And then when I started to see I, well, I got obsessed with Peter, Peter Elbow and I just read like everything I could get my hands on. And I sent him an email, like I sent him fan mail. Like, yeah, <laughs> he's he's been really important to me since I first started teaching. Right. But um, but yeah, I just was, and I'm, I'm also always really interested in like where the practice of writing comes together with scholarship about writing. And like wh- where the con- connection points are, where a writer is getting at the same thing that a scholar is. And I just, like whenever that happens, especially if it's writers I admire, like Virginia Woolf, for example, then I'm like, okay, this is like, this feels right. And also it makes sense to other people. So yeah, so it was, it's, but it's also just kind of um, a kind of a a, a, a wonderful chance to like sort of continue my own education I mean it was it was kind of amazing reading it because all of those writers have all of these different voices and you can see it through the excerpts or the quotations that you would include um it was kind of not not to be too dramatic was like kind of a waterfall for me like oh here it is in this writer and here's you know um it was a subtle way to like have all of these examples of the power of voice, even though a lot of times they were embedded in a chapter to illustrate, you know, the focus of the chapter. But you could also see it in their sentences. Oh, that's so cool. Awesome. (laughs) Which I I was, you know, I'm like, how, how do all of these authors have the same in them? Of course they do. That's why Right. I want to read them because <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there's that the complexity of the all the different voices, right? And the resonance, yeah. which is what makes beautiful writing, I think. And and I, I found that to be compelling um throughout the text, but 
Yeah, I just wanted to hear a little bit more about how you <laughs> wove those all together. And um, my last like official question was, and you kind of hinted about this in the beginning, but if you could tell me a little bit more about it, like which of your voices did you use to write this book? Mm. Oh my gosh. Wow. That's a cool question. <laughs> I think it, it definitely comes out of my teaching voice, mm -hmm. but also like there is a part of a very non-academic version of like my persona like I call it I don't I think I at one point call it hayseed punk rock girl which is like <laughs> a version of my adolescent and early college years you know mm -hmm. and um yeah somebody who just loves writing like is sort of like just in love with it you know that was kind of what I was trying to summon, like that sheer joy and excitement, because if that can come through the page, like that's all I want. So, hey, can you tell me that one more time? With... <laughs> Hayseed punk rock girl. Punk rock girl. <laughs> that's great. So here's here's a little backstory, and this is gonna be a hard <laughs> show to close up because I've taken pages of notes. <laughs> so, on my first day of Fairfield University, I think I sat across from, or like she was a couple tables over a sign and she introduced herself and I was like, okay, I've got a friend. Now, how do I go and meet her? And how do I talk to her? Um, and, and maybe it was like the pasty punk girl. I'm not sure like that I was attracted to um, the rebel rouser. And, and one of the things about Voice First that is so amazing is I, because I know Sonia and I talk to her often, and is that you can hear some of the, the battlegrounds going on in her head, not only, mm -hmm. not only as an academic, not only as a nonfiction writer, but also as somebody who um, has struggled with some disabilities in the way the United States kind of pushes that upon us, or someone mm -hmm. who who has uh, left-leaning ideologies and, you know, and growing up in the Midwest. So I see those tensions in her writing mm -hmm. and that's what makes her voice. Um, I know we have to go to the prompt, but I just want you to know, this is a secret for the four of us. I figured out a way how we were gonna become rich. Oh. So I went online and I, I Googled ranting is delightful. As <laughs> ranting is delightful as are there coffee mugs? Are there t-shirts? There should be. There yeah, really does be. not exist. It doesn't. <laughs> you heard it here first. Sonia Huber ranting is yep. delightful. And That's anybody who, knows me, who goes through who goes through my writing project, they know how much I rant about people who leave grocery carts out <laughs> in the parking lot. It is my it is my number one pet peeve. I'm like, why do you leave them? Like, like, just walk it, get your extra steps and bring it back to the front of the store. Anyway, um, so remember, <laughs> ranting, ranting is delightful. And um. Why? We're going to be rich. I mean, I, okay, so here <laughs> I, we got to go to the last prompt. So go to the prompt. Michelle, what was your last your last prompt? Oh, okay. My last prompt um, is the second part of the first one, which says, think back on the voice you selected at the start of this interview, your wild, semi-feral kid voice, and now try another age, five years before or after the first one. What happens to the voice? Man, that's it's such a good question. And I think that's one of the key takeaways from the whole book is is to play with all these voices. Arg, what would I say to a pirate if I was doing the show as a pirate, right? And yeah. and it's so true. We are multiple identities. And you know, my research is like 
the importance of all the communities our kids belong to and all mm-hmm. the voices they hear in those communities mm-hmm. that kind of get filtered through that one kid. Um, I think we just need to be better listeners to the world around mm. us and how things are communicated and that's and teach kids that, you know, teach college writers that. And that's how you become a better writer. And also pushing back a little bit on the rigidity of academic writing, mm-hmm. um, which I'm, I'll talk to you a little bit off the air about something I've been thinking about, but I just push back, right? Push back about, about scripted curriculums, push back against that there is a proper, a proper way to do things because some of the best ways to get at a great piece of writing is to fight it, right? Bring out that, bring out that punk, right? Bring out that, <laughs> ah, all right. I'm going to hand it over to, to uh, Tanya because I could go on forever. <laughs> <laughs> He's really showing some restraint today. Um, I too have a, have pages and pages full of notes. Um, I just want to thank you, Sonia, for being on our show today and for putting this book out in the world for teachers and I'm sure we will um, reach out to you and see if you're interested in um, sharing with the network in some other ways as well, because this is such a wonderful and beautiful writing project tool. Um, I also want to, um, I, I just want to say also that you really blew my mind a couple of times, like this idea that workshop started with the fiction workshop and we've like twisted it to other means without really thinking about the differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to be thinking about that for days and days for sure. And um, I have really also been pushing about in my role about doing work that goes beyond academic writing for young people, but the authority with which you said, you know, how can that be their authoritative voice? They're not academics. That's mm-hmm. a setup is really powerful. So there are many other things, including I also always want to be Annie Dillard, so that made me happy. Yes. <laughs> uh, Michelle, you were amazing. You had great questions, and it was a lovely conversation. Um, I really appreciate um, the way that you prepared for it and then brought Sonia through this interview to the National Writing Project Network. So thank you so much thank for you, that. Thank you. Thank you. My, my final job always is to thank listeners. So we're really glad you're here. And I bet you are too. And I bet you are right now not even listening to me because you're ordering a copy of this book. And that is well University of Nebraska Press. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you don't, if you love the right time, make sure you don't miss any episodes. Sign up for our newsletter at uh, nwp.org. Sign up right now. Um, join our our teacher writer community at the studio.nwp.org or follow our podcast to never miss an exciting episode like this one. Thank you, everybody. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. NWP Radio.